This is the Education Gadfly Show. We're most uh, fans of standardized testing in the country uh, right here, you know. <laughs> this is a study that only Fordham can love. What does Gadfly say? Hello, this is your host, Mike Petrilli of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute. Here at the Education Gadfly Show and online at FordhamInstitute.org. And now, please welcome my special guests for this week, Ari, Americaner, and Kayla Patrick, both from Education Trust. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having us. Thank you so much. Did I actually get your name right, you Ari? Did. You oh did. You my full gosh. Credit. I had to practice it. <laughs> I had to. It is spelled differently than Ari. It you is. Could... But Mary without the M, like it's not oh, that right. hard. It is Mary without the M. Well, that, that now I can remember. Well, Ari, which is Mary without the M, is vice president for P12 policy practice and research at Ed Trust. And Caleb Patrick is a P12 data and policy analyst. They are here to talk about a great new study that they have out on advanced coursework. Let's talk about it in Ed Reform Update. All right. So Kayla, Ari, uh, we noticed the study, you know, uh, those of us here at Fordham have long been concerned about high achieving students, gifted kids, especially low income kids and kids of color who are high achieving and gifted, although in many cases not identified as such. And so we're excited to see you getting into this as well. I know this has been something you've been concerned about for a long time also. So what's, what's new about this piece of work that you've got out? Great. Thanks for asking. So just as you said, um, this report confirms what we already know, which is that Black and Latino students are underrepresented in advanced coursework opportunities. And we looked at three different opportunities. We looked at gifted and talented programs in elementary school, eighth grade algebra one in, I guess that's middle school, (laughs) and then advanced placement in high school. What's new about this report is we looked at different kinds of schools. So we found two new things um, as a cause for that. Mm -hmm. The first is that in schools that Black and Latino students represent the majority of the student body, those schools have slightly fewer seats in those Mm -hmm. courses. The second thing is that the schools that we might consider to be racially diverse, that is 10 to 50 percent Black and Latino those schools are less likely to fairly enroll Black and Latino students in advanced coursework opportunities. Wow. So that that is an interesting finding and one that I imagine has generated some controversy, right? Because, I mean, certainly there are you know, advocates out there who are, are pushing for more diverse schools, as I think all of us would agree. There's a million reasons we, we want uh, more of our schools to be diverse. But one reason is the hope that, hey, that way kids of color and low-income kids will have more access to these uh, accelerated and advanced opportunities. And you're saying that maybe they actually get less when they're in those schools. Well, what we're saying is diversity can't stop at the school door, right? So if you walk around a high school and in the hallways, the hallways are diverse, but you peek into that advanced class and see no kids of color, that's the problem. So what we're saying is you have to pay attention and have policies in place that ensure that every student who is ready to take those courses has the opportunity. Yeah. All right. Now, let me push back a little bit here and just say, well, it's really a question more than pushing back is to say, how do we think about this question around disparities in light of what we know about the achievement gap, right? That we know that as early as you can measure it, you you know, some people have been able to measure at age three or you measure it at kindergarten, that there's already an achievement gap and a racial achievement gap, certainly socioeconomic achievement gap. So, you know, you could make the case that says, well, look, it it would be naive to think that given that those gaps open up before kids even get to school and that they are quite real, that you would end up in a situation where there's going to be perfect parity based on race or class. And and a lot of the racial stuff might be just really, it's class, right? That, that you're talking about, you know, kids of color tend to be so much more likely to be poor and to becoming 
into school with, with a whole set of challenges. So point being that, you know, when, we, when the kid gets to elementary school or to middle school or to high school, they're just going to be less likely on average to be ready for those uh, gifted programs or advanced courses. What, what do you say to that argument? Well, first, I have to push back, actually push back on you, because I yeah. think uh, we are pretty reticent about using the term achievement gap at all, especially mm-hmm. when you're talking about a kid as young as three. Like, yeah. We're, we're talking about opportunity gaps here. Like if we, I think it should go without saying, but I will say right. <laughs> that like we believe that giftedness, however you define mm-hmm. that is evenly distributed regardless of whether you are, you know, economically well right. off or not right. across racial and ethnic groups. So given that we know that these disparities are the result of opportunity gaps, right? So okay. like inequities yep. and opportunities and uh, take, I point taken. Yeah, no, and I, and I don't disagree. Uh, yeah, right? yeah. I mean, and, including a whole bunch of things that are happening or not happening from age zero to five. Right, right? exactly. Okay. So, okay. So point taken. Yep. Nonetheless, there are these opportunity gaps that translate into um, different levels of, of readiness at different ages across mm-hmm. different groups of kids. Um, two things that I would start with and then Kale, you should definitely jump in if you have more to add. One is that we think there's a little bit of a straw man argument going on here when you when we pivot to this conversation because like sure let's have that conversation if that's all that we have all the work we have left Mm -hmm. to do but actually when we look into one of the things in our report that i think is kind of the coolest is this deep dive into an individual district and Mm -hmm. because you can do a little more analysis Mm -hmm. with a real district data than you can do at a state level sometimes and what we see in that is that a full 50% of the inequities and opportunities have nothing to do with readiness gaps. Mm -hmm. Like if you could just get the kids who are already scoring Mm -hmm. ready. Interesting. Yeah. In enrolled, you could get 50% of the way there. And that's like, that to me seems like a no brainer. And I think you would agree. Absolutely. And so like, let's not distract from that very real part of the problem. Right. By focusing on the other part. And then I would say on the other part though, like we think there's a whole lot to be done around. Like we, we can't just, throw up our hands and say like, well, now they're in high school or middle school, like too late. Like right. they have these opportunity right. gaps. Right. So sorry. Like yep. come back later or try in your next lifetime. <laughs> right. No. And, and it seems like, you know, so for example, at Fordham, we've long time been saying for gifted programs, we should have universal screening. Absolutely. Right. So that you find if there mm-hmm. are those kids out there who Couldn't are, agree. you know, yeah. right. Who, who totally qual, you know, should be in those gifted programs based on say their third grade uh, assessment results, but they're not because the district has some stupid policy where the parents have to know. How yes, the exactly. Works. Yep. Easy. Uh, I mean, not easy, but, but fixable, right? Hard, I mean, but, that, but right. I mean, that, that's something that's fixable. Likewise for gifted programs to have local norms. So it says, you know, instead of having say, okay, you've got to score in the top 2% of the district to qualify, you could say you could be in the top 2% or let's say 10% at your local school. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess I'm what I'm wondering is none of that necessarily gets at this issue that you raise around the diverse schools, right? It, mm-hmm. it could still be, I mean, this is where maybe when you dug in on that district, I'd be curious to know, like, were there kids in those schools who should have qualified for those uh, gifted programs or the advanced courses who are kids of color who were not getting in because of something about the way that they did their, their process and that those pieces, you know, rather than it, well, it was a reflection of, of an achievement gap. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think we would argue that it actually does get at some of that issue because in District X, as we call it in our report, um, like Ari said, half of those kids did show that they were ready for the course, but they still weren't enrolled. And so what we propose is an automatic enrollment policy, which is somewhat like universal Mm -hmm. 
screening. So we propose that districts and states take the data that they already have, whether it be grades or performance on the state test, Mm -hmm. and automatically enroll students in the next most rigorous course. So Mm -hmm. if you're an eighth grader in District X and you're ready, you would be placed in that that next most rigorous course. And that goes for diverse schools, too, where we we hypothesize that some of that has to do with racialized tracking. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And and there are some now, I think, just recently, North Carolina, I think Washington State passed some laws. In Colorado, uh, yep. That's right. Yeah, to to try to do some of this. Uh, Again, to make sure, right, that that if you are ready for uh, accelerated coursework, then you should have that opportunity Mm -hmm. uh, to go. When you think about that, I mean, is this this feels like an issue? I mean, again, here we are, Fordham, Petrus, and <laughs> my outright. I mean, this feels like an issue where there should be pretty broad support. I mean, do you yeah. like what what is keeping us from having some more progress here? Where, where do you think the resistance is? I've been going around saying, like, unlike some things in education, yeah. this isn't a thing where we don't know what to do. Yeah. Like, we know what to do. This is a question of like political will, I think. Yeah. And, and I don't know. Yeah. I mean, it's political will and I guess it's competing priorities. There's mm-hmm. always lots to do. And like, we need to make sure that people understand that this is a thing that should, we need this to be front and center on, mm-hmm. on decision makers' minds. And, and uh, maybe it's worth noting just because it's in our backyard. Like yeah. we don't even have to go to district X in our report, this hypothetical district. There's, I don't know if you've been paying attention to this conversation in Montgomery I, County. Well, that's where I sent my kids <laughs> to school. I sure have. Right. Yes. So like it's similar, yeah. right? That's not a hypothetical district. Yeah. Like we are seeing data showing that even kids like black and Latino kids who are scoring four and five on their park yeah. assessment are not getting into those advanced coursework that's opportunities. Right. And this is the kind of thing where like, we know that Montgomery County has a leadership that, you know, says they're yeah. dedicated to equity. And so, and I will say we've, we think we're seeing some some change, yeah. some promising change there, uh, which is great. Uh, but yeah, no, they are. They're they're doing universal screening. I got yeah. the note home the other day for my third grader saying, you know, he is going to be tested for gifted and talented unless you opt out. Yeah, you know? which is and, great. Uh, which is which is great. And and likewise, they've changed the way the magnet programs work. Though you know, look, there is backlash in Montgomery County to mm-hmm. some of these changes, and it's usually because there is not enough capacity, for example, in some of the specialized gifted schools or magnet schools for everybody that qualifies. And so the, you know, the answer there seems to me open up more access, right? I mean, if kids can do it, you want them to have the opportunity to do it. Certainly shouldn't go backwards like in New York City where Carranza is saying, let's get rid of gifted education, right? Uh, You know, we want to, we want to open up rather than level down. We are, yeah. I mean, we are all for like, I will say like, we are not here to sort of like take an official position on like, should you get rid of given talented or yeah. not? Cause like, I think different places are having kind of very specific mm-hmm. hyper local conversations around that. But like what seems so oh, obvious, right. I won't make you, uh, don't, make do don't make us do it. Don't make us do it. But what we, but what, full of dumb ideas. Yeah, right. Well, that's up to you. But like the, the larger point is that it seems really obvious that it's a bad idea to have the program and not have equal access, which I know you yeah. agree with us on. Absolutely. All right. Well, great stuff. Please check it out. What What's the name of the study again? I didn't even, mention that absolutely it's called inequities and advanced coursework what states can do excellent check it out at edtrust.org yeah right. and wait last pitch there's a data tool there that is really cool for uh, you listeners who care about things like this and are wonky all of them where i that's what i figured so the the thing that i think is probably the coolest about this report actually is the idea that you can get a deep dive into your own state and what excellent. kind of problem you have all right. Excellent. Well, thanks so much, Kayla and Ari. Thanks for coming on the show. Hope you come back sometime soon. Thanks, thanks for, having for having us. All right. Now it's time for everyone's favorite Amber's Research Minute. Amber, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Mike. And-
And David, welcome back to the show as Thank well. Thank you, Mike. <laughs> you know, so uh, nice of you to let me drop by. Well, look, we we I interviewed two guests, and we only have three microphones. Right. So you do the math. You're the math guy around here. Insurmountable challenge. I agree. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, but look, it was always enjoy having uh, folks from Education Trust on the show, mm-hmm. and yep. it is fun. See, there is uh, bi- bipartisanship is still possible here in, in Washington. <laughs> it is possible. It is. It's yes. very. Look, we can find, as we have often noted, education reform has often had strange bedfellows and and when at its height had a really strong coalition with the civil rights groups, often led by education trust and with the more center right groups, especially the business groups. Mm -hmm. Uh, And and on this issue around making sure that high achieving kids of color and poor kids have access to challenging courses, to gifted education, we are in agreement. Yes. So, uh, yeah, this is a good thing. Good. All right, what you got for us, Amber? Uh, after all that, you're going to depress that, us about something? Well, we're going to start talking about things we probably don't agree about, which oh. is student discipline. Oh, yes, oh, <laughs> good example. You're exactly right. Uh, we have a new study out in the AEFP Journal that it contributes to our understanding of the impact of suspensions on non-suspended peers. We don't have enough of these Ooh, studies. we care about this a lot. Uh, what's unique about this study is it is able to measure both schoolmates and classmates' suspensions and takes advantage of students taking these quarterly achieve quarterly all these poor kids but anyway it's great for studies these quarterly achievement tests that allow analysts to better estimate how changes in classroom suspensions associate with changes in student achievement Hmm. they compile a panel of 12 quarterly benchmark exams that students took over three years and employ a two-way fixed effects models including both student and classroom fixed effects so again in effect they're tracking these quarter by quarter changes in student achievement and linking those changes to shifts in the use of suspensions in students' classrooms. Okay? Still, they can't fully separate the effects of peer suspension from the effects of peer misbehavior on learning, but having more frequent measures helps. Okay? Right, because during the same period, you might have had the misbehavior and the suspension. Right. right. She was on the other foot now. Quarterly assessments. That's a lot. The study includes data from one public school. Okay, so it's more limited in the scope. One public school district in California, but it includes about 16,000 students in grades 7 through 11. Wow. Okay, Mm -hmm. it's a lot of kids in a school district. (laughs) Where you could figure this out. Yes, you could. And it's 17 schools in the 2000 through 9 through 2012 years. So it's three academic years. They have student demographic data, of course, on all students. They have discipline records for ISS and school suspension and OSS, out-of-school suspensions, by type of infraction. Okay. They're able to look at OSS and ISS separately. They're able to categorize infractions by type. So they have major infractions, weapons, drugs, disruptive infractions, which is like defiance. And then they have minor infractions like tardiness, dishonesty. Okay. On the descriptive front, before we get into all the impact stuff, 3% of students received at least one ISS each year and 5% received at least one out-of-school suspension each year. Mm -hmm. On average, eight in-school and 12 out-of-school suspensions occurred in a given quarter in a given school. Okay? Okay. Findings. That's not much. No. And that's one of that we'll get to that in a minute. Hispanic students, low-income students, and ELLs, uh, English language learners, are more likely to be exposed to suspended classmates. That's finding number one. Neither schoolmate ISS or schoolmate OSS are linked to the achievement of non-suspended students. 
On average, classmates, when we get closer to the nexus of the of the suspension, classmate suspensions are associated with improved math achievement. Mm. But again, schoolmate suspensions are not. Mm-hmm. For example, an increase in OSS in a classroom is associated with a 0.024 standard deviation increase in the math achievement of non-suspended students. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. Neither classmate or schoolmate suspensions are linked to ELA achievement. <laughs> we see this as a pattern. Mm-hmm. And let's posit that perhaps orderly learning environments may be more important in math since many kids find math challenging. Finally, the euphemism. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they find suggestive evidence that the associations between, between classroom suspensions and increased math achievement are driven by suspensions attributed to major and disruptive infractions, not the minor stuff. They ask the question, which we always ask around here, whether the benefits of suspensions outweigh the cost. And they, then they bring in some estimates where they were able to look at the uh, estimates of suspensions impacts on suspended kids, mm-hmm. right? The, the, you know, the negative stuff. And then they look at the aggregate, you know, effects on the peer suspension on non-suspended kids. They basically say that their study, what they found, could mm-hmm. it could show that the aggregate negative impact on suspended students isn't as great as the positive impacts for the non-suspended kids. You've mm-hmm. tracked all that, I hope. Mm-hmm. But that also discounts the long-term impacts and social costs of suspensions down the road, mm-hmm. which is a little hairier. And this study is saying, hey, it's the vulnerable kids are more likely exposed to the suspended kids than the more privileged kids are. Mm-hmm. So maybe we need to be removing the disruptive peers anyway. Okay. Oof. So let me see if I get this straight. Okay. <laughs> yes. We would expect disruptive peers to have a negative effect, right? Mm-hmm. Okay, so, and we would expect there to be more suspensions when there are is more disruption, right? Right. Okay, so the fact that suspensions have a positive impact despite that, mm-hmm. doesn't that imply that this is kind of like a lower bound? Right? Yes, it yes. is a lower bound. Okay. That's exactly right. All right. And it's also because the suspensions in this district are rare. Too, okay. You know, because they're okay. saying it probably doesn't generalize to a district where you have a ton more suspensions. Right. I agree with that. Yes. Nevertheless, I'm struggling to think of another study that has, I mean, the logic of that is really difficult to assail on, yes. on, at first pass. So, I mean, we've yes. sort of posited that there were these mm-hmm. modest effects that were spread right. across a large group of st- students before. Mm-hmm. But this, to my knowledge, this is kind of the first study that's re- <clears throat> really found them, right? right? Clearly. Um yeah. Well, and, and you remember some of these studies that used to claim that, well, you know, you, you find in places that have lots of suspensions, achievement is lower. Right. right. And they were Which, trying to claim that that was because mm. of the suspensions, that it was, you know, damaging the school climate or something. Right. right. But, right. but that logic was almost surely backwards, right? right? Right. What we really want to know is within those places, yeah. you know, yes, in the quarter versus the other yeah. quarter. Yeah. I mean. Yeah. Now it's really fascinating. You know, it, it is nice to be able to look at this quarterly. Quarterly. Uh, that does give it, it makes me wonder. Boy, I'm like, ooh, that opens up a whole new set of possibilities for study. <laughs> if we don't care about overtesting kids, uh, which is well, another problem, <laughs> right? There's that, uh, sure. But uh, but set that aside for a moment. Yes. Um, you know, makes me wonder about, for, for example, just attendance, right? I mean, yes. there's this big push going on right now to try to get uh, the chronic absenteeism rates down mm-hmm. with the assumption that, you know, kids will learn more if they're in school. But if there's if schools are successful in this, it also means that, you know, it's possible that some of those kids might have been 
disruptive or right. at yes. least low performing. Right. Right. And at the very least, it means that suddenly teachers' real class sizes <laughs> right. on a given day right. are larger. Yeah. I remember yeah. being pretty glad when some kids were absent in my classroom uh, back right? in the day. No, I mean, right. so that's a guy. I think this could be interesting studies to try to figure out like what happened, you know, what are the real class sizes? How do they vary? You know, and, mm-hmm. and, if can you figure out the impact on achievement? Are there certain kids that I mean? Th- this is what's so hard, right? We those everybody who's been in the classroom has this thought that boy, mm-hmm. if there was that one kid or two kids in this class who weren't here, yes. everybody else could have learned a whole lot right. more. So which is relief. not to say that therefore the the right thing to do ethically <clears throat> is right. to get rid of those one or two That's kids right. and stick them somewhere else. Right. Uh, but maybe it is right. in some cases. Make them the teacher assistant, Mike. <laughs> Is that, does that work? <laughs> yeah. Give them stuff to do, you know? Yeah. Hey, that's what a lot of teachers do. Yeah. Like, you know, they, they need to feel important, give them a job and maybe direct yeah. all that energy to something more positive. Yes. yes. Uh, this is a, a very useful parenting uh, <laughs> uh, trick as well. Yes. You'll find this out, David. Uh, too. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it also right. works with dogs. Yeah. To a certain degree. So that is the logical extension. I mean, if you attribute the pos- this small positive impact of suspensions to the kids not being in class, yeah. right, mm-hmm. as opposed to some other channel, mm-hmm. like- through the message that's sent to the student or to right. the other students about right. what's, you know, I mean, mm-hmm. and, and I'm not, I'm, I'm not, I mean, who knows, yeah. right? Yeah. It's tough to say, but yeah, I mean, true. I think the other important point, which before we get too far ahead of ourselves here is, I mean, I've sort of done the mental math before and it, it's, I'm not shocked by that conclusion, right? Which is that like, if you do the mental math from a like strictly utilitarian standpoint, mm-hmm. if you only include sort of learning, mm-hmm. right? And you right. don't look at sort of criminal justice involvement of these other things right. people worry about. It does pencil out, right? right. It, it does. It's pretty easy to get it to pencil out to where mm-hmm. suspensions are a net positive because some kids really bring down the whole class's right. learning. Right. Um, having said that, <laughs> yes. criminal, criminal justice involvement is an extremely important yes. outcome. I feel like we probably haven't acknowledged that often enough in these discussions and so even a modest impact which is really difficult to detect and hard mm-hmm. it's it's also theoretical um needs to be sort or you know sort of unproven in my view needs to be taken seriously so i don't know it doesn't fully resolve but it does get us closer to <laughs> very right. interesting right. Right. stuff yes. all right well thank you amber that that you're right controversial and yet uh not so depressing in a way um not so depressing not, so right. depressing. not for and, us and at least we're not crazy value add love the the quarterly element to this was yeah. a was a true yeah. uh value add for us absolutely uh, right, so. well and as as you know Probably the foremost uh, fans of standardized testing in the country uh, right here. You know, <laughs> you know, uh, this is a study that only Fordham could love. Is that right? <laughs> all right. That's all the time we've got for this week. Until next week. I'm David Griffith. And I'm Mike Petrilli of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute signing off. The Education Gapfly Show is a production of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute located in Washington, D.C. For more information, visit us online at FordhamInstitute.org.